Well, before we look into God's Word together, three things. First of all, this past week, I taped yet another transforming conversation, and the topic was bringing pain to the heart of God, painting God. I want to encourage you to listen to that because I believe it will help you to look at obedience to God from a different angle, one that will encourage obedience. Secondly, these past two weeks we haven't, or past two months, excuse me, our giving hasn't been up to its usual generous standards. And in response to that, I want to ask you to participate over the next two weeks in a night out offering. Now, what is a night out offering? Well, it's not going around to your friends and hitting them up for enough money that you can go out for the night. Instead, I want you to just calculate what you normally spend when you do decide, let's go out tonight. Whether that's at a Golden Arches level or a Ruth Chris Steakhouse level or somewhere in between, when you say, I don't feel like cooking or we haven't been out in a while, let's go out tonight, what do you normally spend? And then add that amount to your regular giving sometime over the next two weeks. Now, obviously, it's an exercise with an objective. And the objective is not only to help with some of our uh, brief shortfall, but to remind us that when it comes to impulsive spending, we tend to be very liberal. When it comes to giving to God's kingdom, we tend to be very conservative. And we really should reverse that. When it comes to giving, we should be spontaneous and liberal. When it comes to spending, we should be conservative. So, a night out offering sometime over the next two weeks, and don't label it, here's my night out offering. Uh, somebody in the finance department might take it literally and have a night out. So, uh, so just add it to your regular giving. And then the final of the three things, August is the month that I always go on sabbatical not vacation. People always ask me, how was the vacation? I've already done vacation. August is sabbatical. When I step away from the day-to-day of the operation of this large, complex ministry and just focus in on hearing from God, doing reading that I can't get to otherwise, praying, fasting, listening for God, talking to the Holy Spirit, just to make sure that we're on track with what he is ordering for us. So always when I enter August, I appreciate your prayers for discernment, that I'll be able to hear from God, know what it is he wants for us, know what it is he wants to do through us, and we'll be able to come back and share that with you as we launch into September. Now it's time for our study of God's Word. We've been journeying through the New Testament book of Acts this year, And today we arrive at chapter 16. This chapter is widely known for its account of a miraculous prison break that wasn't a prison break at all because the prisoners refused to walk out of the prisoner. They said, we're all here and we're staying put. And that's hardly a prison break. It's also known for Paul's words to the panicked jailer who was fearful for his life. Because those words have been quoted again and again, century after century, and have given direction and hope to countless men and women whose souls were hungry for God. 
Now, most sermons and teachings based on this chapter focus on the inspirational. They focus on God breaking the chains that held his apostles in jail. But I'm not going to focus on that miracle. Because behind every miracle, there's a story. And if you don't know the story, the miracle loses some of its impact and some of its relevance for you. So I'm not going to focus on how he broke the chains. I'm going to focus how they came to be in chains. What landed them in prison? And what do those events have to say to those who are serious about following God in mission? Which is to say, those who are serious about following God. Now with that, let me read the lines that introduce the story. Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 12. A vision, notice a vision, not a dream. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Today I'm going to talk about something that all of us have to contend with. Conflicting signals. When God has told you one thing, and life seems to be saying another. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, in these coming moments I ask three things. Help me to teach your word faithfully. Help us to understand it fully. Help us to apply it appropriately. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word, listen for His voice. May the Lord be with you. I'm sure you've noticed that we find ourselves embedded in a culture that is infatuated with immediate results. Put briefly, we hate to wait. We want what we want, and we want it immediately. And that poses a potential problem for those who follow Jesus. Because the results of obedience to God aren't always immediate. Even when you're following a clear-cut call from God. And that's what Paul and Silas and their team were doing when they landed in Philippi. They had been on assignment in Asia. God was working through them. He was building his kingdom. But God interrupted what they were doing in Asia and through the vision instructed them to take the gospel for the very first time to Europe. And again, that call came in the form of a vision. Paul saw a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Now, I know the text doesn't emphasize the word us. I did that. But I did it because I suspect the man in the vision did that. 
I suspect he came across as saying, you've been helping so many others, but what about us? And we read that Paul and his team responded immediately. Say the word, immediately. Because they knew when God speaks, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. When I was a kid, and my mom would call me to dinner at the end of a full day in the local playground, my default answer was always the same. You probably used this answer when you were a kid. I'll be there in a couple minutes. Now, rarely, if ever, was I doing something that I couldn't have walked away from immediately. It's not like I was performing delicate brain surgery on my friends at age 10. There was no reason why I couldn't have come immediately. The issue wasn't that I was under constraint. The issue was the need to control. I wanted to come on my terms and in my time. And if you're a parent, you know kids still do that. And if you're God, you know God's kids still do that. But Paul and the team didn't hesitate. They responded immediately. Perhaps Paul knew that while delaying usually feels very comfortable at first, it becomes very uncomfortable later. Because God's opportunities won't wait on us. They cannot be seized at our convenience. Because when God gives a call... He's aware of so many factors that we are ignorant of. He knows the timing is right. So when he calls, if we respond with, I'll be there in a couple minutes, Lord, we may miss our miracle by a couple of minutes. Now you would think the fact that Paul and the team obeyed immediately, God would have responded by confirming their path. But if you think that, you'd be wrong, because that was hardly the case. Because immediate obedience doesn't guarantee immediate results, not by a long shot. When you obey God, the results often arrive much later. After you have successfully navigated a series of conflicting signals, Developments that make you wonder if you've heard God correctly. Now, Paul and his team didn't have to wait long for the first conflicting signal. Philippi was a Roman colony. Because of that, no Jewish synagogue was allowed inside the city limits. So Jews that wanted to assemble for prayer had to do so outside the city, and they would have sought a stream or a river bank for their cleansing rituals. And since it was the practice of Paul and the team to always seek out the Jewish community first, wherever they went, they went down to the river to pray. And given the vision, they were probably expecting to encounter some Macedonian men who were eager to hear about Jesus. But that's not what they found. They found a very small group of women. Now, what I'm about to say certainly isn't meant to deprecate women in any way. I'm going to make a cultural comment. 
a small group of women in what was then a male-dominated world was not an auspicious beginning. And the fact that it was a small group seemed to contradict the scope of this great vision, take the gospel to Europe. But God's great work often has very small beginnings. And that's why the unbelieving and even some believers often overlook what God is up to. The self-important in Philippi, the movers, shakers, and deal-makers, wouldn't have thought two seconds about a handful of Jews and a handful of women praying down by the river. That wouldn't have been on their radar at all. And if they had known about it, they would have chalked it up to lint. Nothing to give a second thought to. That's nothing. But that team of men and three of the women who were in that group would be immortalized by God in eternal Scripture. And their story is still being told today. You see, God's work may have small beginnings, but God's work is never small. It only appears small to those who have the wrong idea of what constitutes greatness. I'd like to suggest the greatness of a thing is determined by four factors. Its motive, its scope, its consequences, and its duration. Why was it done? How many people did it affect? How deeply did it affect them? And how long did those effects last? Now, God's work restoring the souls of broken humanity is great on all four counts. Whereas the things the world refers to as great generally don't meet a single criteria. One of the women in that small group was named Lydia. She was a high-powered businesswoman. She regularly was one of the female representatives on Shark Tank, although in those days it was only carried on a couple of channels. And she had the honor of being the very first convert to Christ in Europe, in the Western world. And she led her family to faith immediately. Soon after her conversion, the team found themselves accompanied by a demon-possessed girl. The demon enabled her to tell fortunes, and some pimps had become her handlers, and they sold her out for her fortune-telling abilities, and you know who kept the bulk of the money. They were lining their pockets on her unfortunate circumstance. Pimps always do that. Well, this gal followed the team day and night for days, crying out, These men are bond servants of the Most High God, proclaiming the way of salvation. Now, project yourself into the moment. You're part of a team that's trying to strike up conversations and share the gospel. And here's this gal following around, following you around, shouting this wherever you go. That's like trying to preach in a room full of six screaming babies. 
Obviously, it made their witness virtually impossible. Obviously, it became very annoying. And it was another conflicting signal. But in God's mission, distractions don't indicate you're on the wrong path. They affirm the presence of opposition on the path to which God has called you. Distractions remind us that somebody is threatened by our activity when we share the gospel of Christ, and they aren't going to take it lying down. They've got to call on any and every distraction they can. Now, before moving on, I don't want you to miss something significant that's sort of hidden between the lines. As this demon is speaking out of this girl, the demon obviously believed in God. That's biblical. The devil believes and trembles. And this demon recognized humanity needs to be saved and that the gospel of Christ is the way of salvation. A demon recognized that. And why do I suggest that's significant? Because that demon was a spiritual being who, we know from Scripture, was created and existed before the world was created. So that being had been around since before we began to measure time. Now, how much reality had that demonic being witnessed? How much had that demonic being witnessed? scene of spiritual reality from before the earth was created to that day in Philippi. I'll tell you how much that demon had seen. More, far, far more than every atheist, skeptic, agnostic, sin-serving scientist, Notice, not all scientists, just the ones that serve sin. Pseudo-scholar and compromised theologian who has ever drawn the breath of life. And that demon knew there's a God. Man needs to be saved. And Jesus is the way of salvation. We have men and women coming out of seminaries who don't believe any of that. We have educated them to the point where they are dumber than a demon. If I want a credible witness to reality, I'd prefer it be a being who had been around thousands of years than somebody whose life like mine is like a blade of grass here today and gone tomorrow. But Paul didn't want the endorsement of hell or the distraction. So he commanded the demon to leave, and that quickly brought on the next conflicting signal. Because when the demon left, the pimps lost their meal ticket, and they wanted revenge. So they dragged Paul and Silas into court. And they did two very subtle but effective things. First of all, they appear to anti-Semitism. It's always been with us, always will be with us, because it's demonic. Satan hates the Jewish people because it was out of the Jewish people that the Messiah of the world was birthed. So he tapped into anti-Semitism. These Jewish guys. And then he tapped into Roman pride and arrogance. 
And they accuse the apostles of threatening the Roman peace and the Roman way of life. And how had they threatened the Roman peace? By virtue of a tiny prayer meeting down by the river and healing one demonized girl. Now that is hardly the stuff of civil unrest and a mass revolt against the Roman way of life. The reality is, the irony is, the only uproar was the one that the pimps were making because they had lost their meal ticket. But you see, unbelief always stands truth on its head. And here's why it does that. Because for those who are invested in sin, the gospel that constitutes their only hope appears to them to be their biggest threat. If you're in the sin business, Jesus is not good for business. If you're in the business of abundant life, Jesus is very good for business. So let's review. The team's called to Macedonia by a man who's passionate about knowing about Jesus. They're called to launch God's kingdom in Europe. Their first contact, a small band of Jewish women. Their first convert, a European woman. Then as they sought to take the truth more widely, they're hassled by a demon-possessed girl. When they liberate her and they finally encounter some Macedonian men, the first Macedonian men they encounter didn't say, thank you for coming with the gospel. They falsely accused them, stripped their clothing from them, beat them with rods, and imprisoned them without trial in clear violation of Roman law. I would call that a series of conflicting signals. And at that point, Paul must have been tempted to think, was that really God? Or was that just my own zeal making something up? Are we really following Jesus? Or is is this my idea? Have I put my team in harm's way for nothing? And if you are a part of the team, wouldn't you have been tempted to think, did Paul really hear from God? Or did he have anchovies on the pizza the night that vision came? You see, the pursuit of God's call in a broken world will always involve conflicting signals. Always, always, always. But if we stay the course, God will affirm his call even when that doesn't appear to be the case. And it didn't appear to be the case as Paul and Silas sat in shackles in a Philippian prison. Now, prisons then weren't like prisons today. No color TV, no medical treatment, no exercise yard. They threw you into a stockade generally around your neck, around your wrists, around your feet, that was extremely uncomfortable, held you in a pained position where you sat in your own excrement and that of the prisoners before you. 
And as Paul and Silas sat in that pain thing, remember, their clothes had been stripped from them and their backs were raw from having been beaten and they didn't receive any medical care. By the way, we read that in that condition, they began to sing praises to God. We sometimes have power praising God if somebody cuts us off in traffic. Now, if you had gone to the power elite of Philippi at that moment with the suggestion that a few religious fanatics locked up safely in custody, a handful of women, and the restoration of a troubled girl represented something bigger than all the political, military, social, and economic affairs of Philippi on that day, if you had told them that this was going to be a defining moment in history, that it would influence American democracy millennia later, they would have laughed you to scorn. But let's have a pop quiz. How many of you in this room can name one of the political leaders, business leaders, philosophers, social activists of Philippi in the first century? Okay, that's what I would suspect. Now, and not even me. I, I didn't bother to look it up. <laughs> you see, the movers and the shakers are now nothing more than lint on the pages of history that nobody reads. But those beaten, chained up apostles, their story, their gospel, those few women, we're talking about them in. 2017 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, while our brothers and sisters all around the world continue to talk about them with regularity. And the words that Paul spoke about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved have changed the destinies, the eternal destinies of millions of people and the coming of the gospel to Europe more than any other single factor, shaped Western civilization. And again, shaped the idea of freedom, democracy, the value of the individual, and personal rights. And, and just a reminder, those who reject the idea of God and embrace evolution, there are no equal rights in evolution. There is no basis for freedom in evolution. Evolution teaches the survival of the fittest. Evolution inspired Mao and Stalin and Pol Pot because in the survival of the fittest, you can conveniently exterminate millions of people in the name of progress, but you can't do that in the name of Jesus. So Americans who are so eager to get rid of gospel influence for evolution don't know, but they are suffocating the very freedoms that they enjoy and ensuring that one day those freedoms will be gone.
And that angers me not because I'm a defensive Christian, but because I hate to see humanity sold a bill of goods. So the next time God calls you and you run into conflicting signals, remember this story. Remember the story that preceded the miracle, the story behind the miracle. And determine that by God's grace, you're going to stay the course even when all the signals tell you you're on the wrong path. Because you don't want to be numbered among those who pulled up and stepped off the track when they were just a few steps away from victory. Let's pray together. Father, help us each one now to apply this principle where we're at in this moment. Some need to apply it in their marriage, some with their children, some with their parents. Some need to apply it in their workplace. All of us will need to apply it in our ministry within your kingdom. But Lord, when we run into conflicting signals, I pray we wouldn't take the detour. I pray we would praise you and press on. A broken world needs us to do that. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Final thought. You know the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. The pimps, the haters, the corrupt court that persecuted the apostles, as they did so, covered themselves in the flag of Roman patriotism. They labeled the teaching of the apostles a threat to the Roman way of life. Today, in the United States, many of those who hate the cause of Christ do the same thing. But they clothe their attacks against the gospel in the flag of American patriotism, suggesting that the gospel is incompatible with our American way of life because it's too intolerant, it's too narrow, it's too divisive, it's too disruptive. It actually suggests there is truth. And a noted politician said so recently in our nation to widespread applause and affirmation. So the final reminder from Acts 16, sin generally arrives in costume. It presents itself as benevolent and humane when it's actually selfish and cruel because nothing could be more cruel than to cut off lost humanity from the one who is abundant life and do it in the name of being tolerant, enlightened, and humane. If that's your enlightenment, if that's your tolerance, if that's your humanity, if that's your benevolence, I'll pass. God bless you.